If you haven't opened your Bibles, do so now to Acts chapter 18. And we're just going to jump in. I got no, I got no intros, no intros, just going after it. Look at verse 18. After this, stop. Well, I have no intro. We'll just start reading, and, and there's my intro uh, is at, after this. What's after this? We need to read the Bible in context, all right? Last week, you, you see Paul show up in Corinth, all right? And, and it also has a wonky transition. It goes, oh, after he left Athens, he showed up in, uh, in Corinth. Uh, and, and in order to understand what you were looking at last week, you needed to understand Paul's state of mind that he was in then. He was beaten down, weak. He hadn't been able to set up a church or plant a church in any of the cities and stick with it in any of the cities on his missionary journey. Uh, he had just gone to Athens and what looks like to us reading the Bible looks like this, this great just boom, just right hand of fellowship in the face of the Athenians, like preaching the word and, and being really uh, uh, culturally contextualizing the, the gospel to them. It looks like a home run. What actually, if you, if you pay attention, Mar- Mars Hill, um, Paul actually only has a few converts and then he gets laughed out of town. All right, so he's been, he's been kicked out of, uh, of several cities. The, Thessalon- the Thessalonians are just hunting him down, hounding him from city to city, making problems for him. And he arrived at Corinth, just beat down and weary and in need of encouragement. So you, need, you needed that context for then. All right, for this chapter, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. All right, so the context is after Paul gets to sit and, and set up shop and plant a church in Corinth, which is the Las Vegas of, uh, of that time period, of, of that area. He, he just got to plant a church, and he, he got to be there and love the people and, and be their shepherd and, and be with this flock. As, as a pastor, I, I can't tell you how joyful and, and fulfilling it is for me to just spend time with the people that God has handed me over to. I love it. So this is, after all of this, after about a year and a half, I'm sorry, after the time during his ministry, and then they go to the, he gets sued, right, by the, by the Jews in the synagogue, and then Gallio says, nope, not going to deal with this, not my, not my problem, and then the Jews, you know, beat up the, the guy from, from the synagogue right there in front of him. He's like, oh, I didn't see nothing, all right? Uh, he, it looks like he fell in a box of fists, all right? Um, and, after this, Paul gets to stay many days longer. That's a big deal. That's a big time of respite. God's continued encouragement and love uh, on, uh, sitting on Paul. And then he took leave of the brothers and he set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria, I was going to pronounce it differently, but I heard you say it. I just figured I'd go with the way you, you do it. All right. At Sancria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Um, interesting thing here, when, when you're reading Acts, you're not really reading theology. All right? um, Acts is not a, a, is not a theological um, uh, treatise. All right? What you're reading here is actually a narrative of the outplay of theology. So you can learn theology from Acts, but you're going to have to learn it by seeing the theology at work in the Acts and the work of the church, the, the apostles, Peter and, and then Paul as well. All right? um, and so you, what you have here is just this little narrative cue, all right? this, just a very specific thing. All right? just, why is that in there? He went to Sancria, all right, visited his, his salon and, and got his hair cut. And he was under a vow. Why is that in there? This is an account. This is not a myth. All right? If you read myths from various religions or, or ancient cultures, um, they have a lot of weird stuff and random stuff. But, but in this case, this is, this is not like some weird thing because it's, this is a narrative. And it's quite important. I'm, I'm, I want to camp on, on, on this little thing. All right, It's going to come back into play a little later. 
at Sincrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. So he's left Corinth. He is on his way back to Jerusalem and he cuts his hair. What this, what this is indicating is by all accounts, we, we can pretty much uh, guess that he has taken some sort of vow. All right. What it's supposed uh, is that this is a Nazarite vow, which is a really funky, weird word. And if you've heard of the word, the, the city or the town uh, Nazareth, the two are not related. So to further the confusion for you, those two things are not related. Okay. Um, but he's taken what's called a Nazarite vow. Basically, he has dedicated himself to some sort of spiritual discipline for a time period. Um, and and what, what that looks like is the Nazarite vow would have been taken for 10, 30, 60, or 100 days. All right, depending upon what, you know, what, how you're dedicating yourself to the Lord, what you're sort of uh, uh, being in thanks for or asking the Lord for, seeking his will in. And, and so Paul would not have drank any wine, nor would he have been allowed to like eat or touch like grapes. Some of you are like, oh, that stinks. And some of you are like, grapes, I can do without. I haven't eaten grape in like months. I don't know the last grape I had. So it doesn't seem like that hard of a vow. All right. The wine, some of you might have trouble with. All right. And then um, as well, he, he would not have cut his hair. He would have let his hair go, all right? This is, this is an Old Testament uh, kind of, uh, just kind of vow structure that's elaborated on in the Old Testament. I, I won't go to it. I'll just reference it. And so for some period of time, Paul has let his hair grow out. And in that culture, men were supposed to have short hair, all right? They're not walk, walking around like Pete, just like, just beautiful flowing cymbal locks, and it's glorious, all right? Back then, it was short hair for the dudes, which means with this vow, as he's dedicating and devoting himself to worshiping the Lord, obeying the Lord, seeking his will, committing himself to the things of the Lord, his hair is growing out and it's becoming more and more apparent. He possibly would have even been mocked um, by, by those who didn't understand the Nazarite vow. He would have been mocked maybe because he looks like me when I grow my hair out. Some of you saw you know, a year or two ago, it did not look good. All right. Don't woo that. And so interestingly, the, the first idea here is that Paul, this is the apostle Paul, right? Like, like America, Paul, right? It, it, like a real American hero, if he was from America, a, a real Christian hero wrote most of the New Testament. You're, you're memorizing things the Lord led him to write. And in the middle of ministry, Paul is making a vow and going under spiritual discipline. He's, he's taking it upon himself not to simply take for granted all the great work the Lord has let him do in different cities, all the miracles he's got to, gotten either see or perform. He's not going to take for granted even the fact that he got to meet Jesus face to face and Jesus you know, blinded him and he has this great, amazing testimony. He's not going to take that for granted. Even a, a, just a top shelf Christian apostle like Paul recognizes the great gift and necessity it is to regularly devote yourself to the Lord, spiritual discipline. Uh, spiritual discipline is not something that younger Christians are to walk in because they're uh, young and immature and you bump into junk and you don't know what you're doing, so you need to be... Dis spiritual discipline is something that you grow into and you get better at, much like repentance, right? Repentance isn't just something you do early on in Christianity and after you get really good and you stop cussing so much, all right, then you don't have to repent anymore. Christians actually in their maturation, they get better at repentance. Spiritual discipline, devotion to the Lord is something that Christians grow into. The most mature of Christians come to love the gift of spiritual discipline. 
What, what specifically has Paul done? I, I just kind of told you, frame from cutting his hair for some time, all right? He's just getting his hair cut, so he's on the back end of his, his vow. He's refrained from drinking wine or, or touching anything having to do with, with grapes. Why has he done it? P- quite possibly, this is an act of thanksgiving for what the Lord has just done, all right? What has the Lord just done? He spent months and months and months going from town to town, getting stoned, getting beaten, getting laughed at, getting mocked, getting sued, getting chased down, getting lied about, getting dragged into courts with false accusations against him. And now he finally got to go to pretty much a, a location that you would never think the gospel would take root in, and you would see the gospel transform and save people into Christianity. And now there's this robust church in Corinth, and the Lord let Paul be part of that. He used it. It's a great gift. And so in, in part of spiritual discipline is giving thanks. And, and I think we, we far too um, undervalue the spiritual discipline of thanking the Lord, right? We, we turn thanks for the food into a rhymy uh, grace type prayer that we teach our kids. And then we'll just kind of say ourselves, right? We, we, we leave thanks to the Lord as just kind of a thing we tack on real quick because we know we're supposed to be thankful, all right? But I don't want to be that guy who's too thankful and all spiritual. Spirit, spiritual. A spiritually disciplined person is a person who is just overflowing with gratitude because they're well acquainted with the power and goodness of the Lord. And so this is what Paul is, is doing. He's thanking the Lord and devoting himself in spiritual discipline for gratitude It's a recognition of his need and ongoing need for God to be at work in his life, for God to be at work in his ministry. I also want to ask, well, what is a vow, right? We take vows at, you know, weddings, right? You say some flowery, nice things. The lady's been working on this for months, all right? The best man's job is to remind his, the, 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 the groom the night before when they're half drunk. Oh, you got to write some vows. Like, oh, yeah, okay. I scribble them down. All right. You have some, some vows at the... None of you did that. None of you did, right? You're very sanctified people. Um, uh, we, we have some... They're a promise. A vow is a promise, a statement that you, you're, it's a solemn thing. This is what I think, and therefore this is what I shall do, so help me God, all right? Should God strike me down if I do not do X, Y, or Z? It is a solemn, solemn, solemn promise. It's a consecrating promise to God to pursue and commit yourself to holiness in some particular manner. It's a diagnostic opportunity to observe the value that you place on Jesus. So fasting is kind of a vow, right? When you withhold from yourself food, you're, you, part of what happens is this diagnostic stirs up in your heart. When I fast, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie, I, when I have fasted, I've never really um, entered into some sort of visionary state where I'm weak and I have like a prophetic vision. I, I, I can't tell, even tell you that I get into longer, longer more robust and just Oh, Shekinah-filled times of prayer when I fast. The Lord has used fasting for me in times where just, it's a diagnostic. And my prayer tends to end up being just over and over. Jesus, I love you more than food. I love food right now. I'm dreaming of food. And you are diagnosing my heart to show me how little I hunger for you. And he diagnoses my heart. So, so a vow of some sort, spiritual discipline in this promise works as a diagnostic and it helps us reevaluate what kind of value that we place on our King and God and Savior, Jesus. 
It's also a sanctifying opportunity to learn discipline and, and, and faith, to, to just start to recognize just how much do I need Facebook? Just how much do I need to talk? Several years ago, Kirk and I, um, at, a, at a previous church, we had a crew of dudes, and maybe a few of you are in here. We, we decided to, to fast for uh, several days, and then we're going to gather up at night, and, and then we're going to hang out at the church, and we're going to watch a, a sermon, and we're going to have discussion, and we're going to pray with one another, and, and then at midnight, we're going to break our fast at the Waffle House. And, and just, I, the, the Lord, that's not wise, by the way. Don't do that. <laughs> But the Lord, for some reason, just put it in my brain. You, you need to take a vow of silence. I, I, I am, I'm 13 minutes in, and I've said more words you're going to say all week long. All right? If you have any experience with my preaching, you, you know to pack a lunch for my sermon, right? And so I, I, this, is, this has since then been a regular thing that we're, we just go, vow of silence, bro. Just shut up. How much do you need words how much, how much comfort and validity do you find in talking and telling and convincing and persuading and deluging and flooding people with words? Just shut up. Shut up, and, and I'm going to talk. It is, a, it is a sanctifying opportunity to learn discipline. It's also a worship opportunity to meditate on Christ's value and beauty above the things that you're withholding yourself from. Again, Jesus, I love you more than food. I love you more than X, Y, or Z. Whatever I'm withholding myself from, I'm placing you in the place of that value and seeing how much more value you have. And it mostly involves some sort of sacrifice, again, in some way that brings about some level of discomfort or even suffering, all right? This is vows of chastity. It's a solemn vow. Before you're married to go, Lord, this is your body. This is not mine. It's the body you gave to me. And because you love me, you've got some designs on how this body is to be employed and you made me to be a sexual being, right? So I, 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 my heart, my, my flesh itself yearns. And I'm not talking about sinful flesh. I'm just talking about biology that God put in you to desire the flesh of another warm human being next to you. You go, I don't have a husband yet. I don't have a wife yet. But Lord, you are all. You are above. You are greater. And this even is from you. I consecrate my, my body, I devote my body in obedience to your design because I know your ways are better. I know your ways are better. And it's hard. I, it's difficult. I, I'm, I'm just going to be real honest. I mean, if you are single, not yet married, and you are marriage-minded, and you struggle with temptation, or, or, or you simply ache for that companionship to have a spouse and to be able to lay with them, that's suffering, it is very hard, and, and I would argue that cherish, as, as difficult as it sounds, cherish the suffering that you go through because it's purifying not only your body, but your heart for Jesus and the spouse that he will someday possibly give you, right? So it brings suffering as well, some sort of uh, discomfort. Why, why do this? Why do this overarching? I'm just going to read 1 Peter. You don't have to turn there uh, unless you want to, unless you're fast. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, um, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for 
I am holy. So your new identity, your new personhood comes from a God who is holy. You're, you're made in his image. You are regenerated and born again into his image. And you are, the whole purpose of that is to, Romans 8 is going to say, to conform you to the image of his son. And so if that is your identity, if Jesus is the name that you profess, you lay claim to as a Christian, then he says he's holy before you're to be holy. If it's really true, you'll see a pursuit of holiness start to play itself out in your life as the Lord draws you into more affection for him and gives you more and more of Christ Jesus' mind and heart. He starts to make your mind and heart more like his, which will be a pursuit of his holiness. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear and throughout your time of exile in this world, knowing that you were ransomed for the feudal, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why do vows involve some sort of suffering? Because the blood that washed you was the result of suffering. Jesus didn't go to a, a, a big van on the side of some street where there was a nurse who had some juice and cookies and he just got a few pints out and, and now we're good. He, he opened his veins. He opened his palms. He opened his side. He opened his whole back up, his, his, his skull with the thorns. He opened and all of his blood, that sacrifice, that suffering is what saves and sanctifies you. So suffering as a result of a vow Suffering as a result of devoting yourself to Jesus and affection for him and for his ways, it reminds you of who and what has made you justified. The gospel, the suffering of Christ and him crucified. It also is instrumental in bringing about personal holiness based on the foundation of the gospel. It better acquaints us with the Jesus who set aside his rights in heaven. So part of your vows, you go, I, I really, there's nothing bad about, uh, let's say, if you enjoy within modesty, within Christian guidelines, you know, if you enjoy alcohol or if you enjoy food, we can sin with food just as much as we can with alcohol. If you enjoy social media, if you, you, we set aside very good things, things we have a complete right to. When we set aside our rights to devote ourselves to Jesus, then we start to be better acquainted with Jesus who set aside all of his rights. He left his throne, left the glory of angels who were continuously praising, glorious, amazing, awe-striking, fear-striking angels who they have to cover their faces as all they can just do is go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That's the concert he's sitting in on his throne in perfect united companionship with the Spirit and the Father. He sets aside his rights and puts on your humble human flesh. So when you suffer, when you take a vow, it better acquaints you with this Jesus. It better acquaints us with the suffering of the poor and the downtrodden, the outcast, the widow, the disabled, the sickly, and the peasant of the third world nations, that we would get a sense of their pain and hardship and then likely be more moved to serve and care for them. And as well, vows of this sort, the vows of what, of what Paul is engaging in, they, they help our spirits fight against worldliness and the, and the glittering gadgets, the glittering uh, prizes of this world, whether it's the house you dream of, 
the spouse you dream of, the job or the position you dream of, the, the, the thing that you want to do that will make your life finally right, and ah, I've arrived, I'm there, this is all, right? The, the, the gadgets, the TV, the car, the truck. Well, when you set aside these things to devote yourself to the Lord, he becomes even more and more and more, more brilliant and beautiful and valuable and precious. And these things, as we are sojourning through the world, we stop being collectors of stuff and we become devoted disciples of Christ, all right? I would invite you to pray and consider in your heart what you might hand over and sacrifice as a vow, a sanctifying promise to the Lord your God that you would draw close to him, have your idols and functional saviors identified and grow further into the sacrificial mindset of Jesus. I would just invite you to, to spend some time and pray and ask the Holy Spirit, hey, is this a season, uh, do, do, is this a season of, of sacrifice and suffering that you would have me voluntarily step into to draw close to you, to sanctify my, sanctify my body, sanctify my computer, sanctify my, um, my, my, my dinner table, sanctify my mind or even my mouth? Lord, is this a season? What, what would you have me hand over just so I can just draw close to you? and find you more beautiful and more powerful and, and understand your affection for me as an act of gratitude, as a demonstration of God's power to sustain you, as an effort to worship Christ as God and King on a more visceral and, and feelable uh, level. So I, I know what it's like to go through cold seasons, times where it just feels like you're far far. It feels, feels like either you're far from him or he's far from you. I know how hard it is where you've had mountaintop, you know, passion conference. David Crowder's looking right at you with a song and he's, he's singing to you and Jesus, right? His mountaintop experiences and you're crying, your hands are in the air and it's beautiful and magical and mysterious. I also know what it's like to just go, I don't know where that went. It, it may be, if you're, in that, if you're in that kind of season where you're just like, where did you go? Where have I gone? Where is passion for you? Where's my direction? Well, I, would, I would possibly argue, man, in, in, a, in an interesting tension of gratefulness and need, um, consider how the Lord might call you to a vow, a, 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 a vow, a promise, of a, a season just of disciplined pursuit of the Lord, which may bring discomfort and suffering, but that suffering bears the greater fruit of devotion to Jesus. Verse 19, they came to Ephesus and he, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews. When they'd asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. We know that Paul's gonna return to Ephesus. He actually writes a book to the church in Ephesians. So we know that it's God's will that um, he's going to return. Paul didn't know that, but God did. And here's Paul's MO again, his mode of operations, right? He goes to the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews. Um, in the previous section of scripture, we see his, um, his, basically he shakes his robe out and goes, your blood's on your head, Jews of the synagogue. I'm going to the Gentiles. That was a situational thing. That, that's a thing that happened in Corinth, but that wasn't Paul just going, hey, forget the Jews. I'm done with the Jews in all places and all times. All right. He, he is back in Ephesus. Paul hasn't given up on his older brother, the Jews, to only focus forever on the younger brother, the Gentiles. And it's been actually about a year and a half since he's actually gotten to sit in a synagogue and just hang with Jewish brothers and tell them the gospel. The last time, last time that happened, he got shouted out and then sued. 
So this is, he's back kind of with cultural lifelong family. This, this is the church he grew up in. This is a synagogue and the culture that he grew up in. And so this, again, another little bit of grace of the Lord being kind to Paul. And it's nice to see Paul get back, not only get to go back to his roots, but he also gets to see actually some, some Jews who actually open the Bible and like the brains, they go, you know, there's something to this. This Jesus you're spitting sounds rad. Tell us more. All right, did I say rad right? Yes, don't tell me. I grew up in the 80s. I know rad, all right? <laughs> um, Paul helps to plant a church in this city, which um, he will later write a letter to, and that is gonna end up in the canon of scripture. And doubtless, some of the Jews that Paul is speaking to right now in the synagogue, uh, they're gonna become believers in that church, and they're gonna be influential in broadcasting the gospel that Paul brought to them. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians is actually one of, one of the more quotable books of, of the Bible, and I'd love to talk more about the subject matter here in, uh, in these verses. But like Paul, uh, if it's God's will, I'll return to you some other time in the future and talk more about this. We're going to move on, if it's God's will. Verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatea and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So you get a sense here already. I spent a long time talking about that one little, he cut his hair because of a vow, all right? But if you just read this text, text straight through, it's like following Indiana Jones on the map, right? Didn't think my falsetto could get that high, did you? That's shameful. All right, so um, <laughs> um, he, he's just going from place to place to place. He spent the better part of three or four months in, in Ephesus, and then he got moving again. And what we see here in Paul's, this is the end of Paul's second missionary trip. If you're, if you're keeping track, if you're taking notes, this is the end of Paul. This marks the end of Paul's second missionary trip, because how do you know? He, he lands in Jerusalem. He, he starts in Jerusalem, goes out, and he likes to return to Jerusalem, get repacked up, get, get kind of some R&R, and then move back out from Jerusalem and go around again. Uh, and so this is the end of his second, starting on third. All right. And what is he doing as he leaves to go to Galatea and Phrygia? Right. He is strengthening the disciples. The, the Greek here, I don't normally, I, I like Greek. I like learning the, the, the cool stuff. I love theology terms, but I don't normally do like Greek word studies, but I just thought this was possibly interesting. I, I, I felt, yeah, I need to know what, what strengthening the disciples really means. So I went and found the Greek, found online, I don't know, you, know, you don't, can't believe everything you find online, but it looks like this word strengthening, what he's doing is it's sterizon, sterizon, which means make stable, affirm, to reaffirm and to render constant and firm. And that's what Paul's doing. He's going around now to churches that he's either already planted or churches that were already there. And his primary job right now is to go to those places and firm them up, to encourage them, to come and preach the gospel in such a way that those who need fire in their belly, they get fire in their belly. Those who need a little steel in their spine, they get some steel in their spine. Those who need to be told, hey, get up off your lazy, unregenerate, unregenerate butt, all right, and get moving, and you stop doing this, and you start doing this. I love you. Jesus is on his way. Jesus is moving. You get moving, all right? You have 
everything to believe in. You have everything that you can lose is, isn't worth comparing to all that Christ's kingdom will, will bring with it. So let's do this. Jesus is on the move. You be on the move. That's, that's he's getting in there. And he's not doing some Tony Robbins, big, huge boom microphone thing, wearing gloves and getting sweaty and telling you to dig deep and find your dream. He's, got, he's telling them, inspiring with them with the gospel. Paul is doing several things, evangelizing the brothers and sisters. Well, they already heard the gospel. They need the gospel again. The gospel is not something you graduate from once you hear and become a Christian. The gospel is something you graduate further and further and further into as a Christian. He's also sharing his testimony of mission from other places. He's coming into these towns and going, hey, let me tell you what happened in Corinth. What were you doing in Corinth, Paul? What were you doing? That's a nasty place. Well, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? Now, let me tell you, all these hookers and bikers and druggies and weirdos, they started believing in Jesus and getting baptized, and people who were only living for themselves started living for Jesus. Their hearts were changed. They were entirely different people. It was crazy. It was... The Jews sued me, and the Roman pagan governor went ahead and said, no, I'm not going to take the case. You're you're fine, Paul. Go ahead and do what you want to do. I'm like, wow, that's favor from God through a pagan governor. And then they even went and gave the the synagogue leader a beatdown right in front of me. And then I actually preached the gospel, and his name was Sosthenes. There's actually indication that Sosthenes later became a Christian after getting beaten up, all right? He's telling this story, and like, what happens in your heart when a brother or sister in Christ comes up to you and says, let me tell you, let me tell you something. Wow. I was in line of the Taco Bell ordering my beefy five-layer burrito. And this guy asked me about my tattoo or, 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 or he saw the, the bumper sticker for Gospel Community Church in my car or he just happened to say something or I saw this lady upset and bothered and crying. He just felt moved to go and ask her, hey, are you okay? My, my, name, is, my name is Matt. Can I talk to you? Do you need someone to talk to? Just, and someone comes with their story of how God just moves in this like unforeseen but anointed way. What happens to your heart when they share? You're like, wow, he's real. You're like, yeah, I wasn't even there, but yeah, bro. All right? You just get, you get strengthened. You get sturdied up. Sometimes you just need reminding that this is real. This is real. Because a lot of us just aren't walking in a lot of miraculous spiritual power. Not, not all of us have this great gift. We walk up and we, we preach the gospel to someone in line at Taco Bell and we baptize them under the Mountain Dew fountain, right? We don't, we don't walk in that. So to hear and get to, to get, get to hear from a brother and sister in Christ, the, the work of Jesus who's on the move, oh, it's good for you and it's good for them who share. That's what Paul is doing. He's opening the scriptures and preaching and teaching God's design for the church in light of the gospel. And he's writing letters of encouragement, of instruction, and even correction. Paul's overarching purpose, what he's doing is he's strengthening disciples so that they will obey the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. He, he's strengthening them for the greatest commandment so they can walk in that, obeying the Lord's greatest commandment, to love Jesus with everything, just everything. How is he doing that? How is he getting to that? He's going to the church. He's going to the, to the gatherings. He's going to the church family in each of these places, which is in, in inspiring Part of what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Be sturdy, don't waver. 
All right? So sometimes, most of us aren't going to be like climbing up on the cross and hanging on the big T-junction, looking out like Captain Jack Sparrow going, that way, church. Most of us are down on our face, like holding the, holding the cross on our face, mud, on, mud and tears. Don't waver. Hold on to it. Whatever part of the cross you got hold of, just hold on to it. Paul says, let's hold fast the confession of our hope, the gospel, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say the day drawing near. Paul recognized that one of the greatest ways that Christians are strengthened is by being with one another. Testifying to the goodness and power of Jesus and encouraging one another, instructing one another, watching one another's backs, enjoying life with one another, working alongside one another, confessing sin, repenting, and then restoring one another as one stumbles and others gather that bro up and get him moving along, restoring and sharing grace. That happens within the church body. And so it's not about, Kurt McDonald didn't plant gospel community church service. He just planted gospel community church. A service is involved. The Sunday gathering is involved. I don't want to overvalue it, but I don't, I don't want you to undervalue it. This is, where, this is where strengthening and encouragement and direction and, and calling starts to break out. If you're not in a community group, stop screwing around and get in touch with a community group leader I don't know who's in charge of it right now. Get in touch with a community group leader and go, I don't want to undervalue the gathering of believers. I need strengthened. I need strengthened. I need to get moving. I can't move. I'm really weak right now. I'm not connected, right? I don't have, I have things baggage that I have unconfessed. It's just holding me back. I'm ashamed and scared. I need someone I can trust that I can get that out and someone will restore me and share grace with me and patience on me. Show me how Jesus is handling me spiritually so you'll handle me physically that way. Show me Jesus' love. I need to get in a community group. Share me with your testimony. Help me understand. Help me, just tell me what your story is. Tell me what God is doing in your life because it's hard to see what he's doing right now for me. It's hard to see what he's doing in the world around me. Will you share that? Strengthen me. That's what Paul's about. He's going out to these churches to strengthen the disciples. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. It's, it's a considerable miracle that, that Apollos is a Christian. Um, let me tell you a little bit about where he comes from. Alexandria was the greatest city in Egypt of that time. All right, greatest city in Egypt of that time, founded some 400 years before uh, this passage, this chapter in Acts. It was founded and named for the famous Macedonian king, Alexander the Great, and it had the largest urban population of Jews at that time. Even more Jews were living in the urban population of Alexandria than there were in Jerusalem, mostly because the Romans had been driving out and dispersing the Jews because they were pretty troublesome. They liked to have riots, okay? lost my place. There we go. Um, It's in Alexandria that the Septuagint, which is the first Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, was was crafted and and made. And it's it's not only likely, it's, it's entirely just reasonable to understand that when Paul is preaching, 
um, the, to this, to this in, in the Mediterranean area on, on his journeys, the, the language of the day was, was Greek. And so the Bible he's preaching from, um, he, the Old Testament scriptures, he preached from the Greek manuscript, the Septuagint, and it was created in Alexandria. How did Christianity get to Alexandria? It's three miles west of, 300 miles west of Jerusalem as the crow flies. If you travel by land, it's a much harder, more difficult journey. And we don't actually have the biblical narrative of how Christianity spread to Alexandria, all right? We don't actually have a biblical narrative of that. But we can speculate possibly, all right? Uh, this is now speculation. This is theology in light shaded pencil, okay? We're not making any claims. We're just going, hey, it's a possible thing. It's, it's cool to speculate and, and have fun with this, just knowing that we're not deriving any theology or, or living our lives off this, right? But it's specul- uh, speculative that perhaps some of the Christians who fled from Jerusalem during early persecutions, they went to Egypt because of the Jewish population in uh, Alexandria. We might speculate even more, more romantically. I like this one. I like this one. We might even speculate more romantically that the, um, that the Ethiopian that Philip gospeled to and baptized on the side of the road, he's from Ethiopia, and he would have been traveling down through Egypt on his way back home. We, we don't get much more than that. He's the Ethiopian left, and he went away worshiping the Lord. Who knows the circumstances the Lord aligned so this Ethiopian, who's not a church planter, he, he may not even have some understanding of being a, a missionary to his culture, probably knows way less theology than most of you, but in just the act of leaving and going home and on his way, as the course of his life is now directed, he's just worshiping the Lord. Who knows who's gospeled on the way? Who knows how the webwork of Christianity, the gospel spreads to uh, Alexandria? Regardless, it's God's providence. However it happened, it's God's providence that Apollos, this Egyptian from Alexandria, became a Christian. I, I want you to, I want to ask you to consider I want you to consider your narrative, your life. Put yourself in Apollos' position, right? How did you get saved? How, how did you become a, if you are a Christian, how did you become, how did you come to know Jesus? Ask these questions. I want you to ask them and start answering them in your mind as I'm rolling through them. How did God bring about your salvation? Who taught you? Who evangelized you? Who shared the gospel? Think of their name. Think of their face. Think of the time and circumstances. Was it a one-time deal where they came and like just preached and told you straight up and they expected to close the deal with you? Or was it like a role model relationship thing where they just spent many, time, many hours, many days, many weeks, years with you? Now, what, was, what was your demeanor? Did they, did they pray for you? How long did they serve you? How long did they strive for you to believe? How, 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 much, how, much, how, many, how many tears do you believe that person who was praying for you and really heartbroken for you and preaching? How many tears do you think they shed as they just were interceding and praying that Jesus would do what only Jesus can do for you? How, how long did they walk in that carrying you as their burden? Was it a relative, a friend, a coworker? What was your attitude and demeanor? Did you fight or argue? Did you debate? Did you just straight up, did the Lord just go, you're done, let's go. And you, you're like, oh yes, I'm a Christian. All right, let's go to, the walk, you know, let's go, let's go to Mountain Dew and get you dunked, right? All right, what was your demeanor? Was it the work that was done in a church service or a Bible study? Was it a social situation outside of the church? And then, do you know how they got saved? You know how they got saved? How did they get saved? Who, who, who ministered to them? Who preached the gospel to them? How did that happen? How did, how did God align those circumstances for that person? Do you know the answers to those questions for that person? 
What about the person who God used to save the person that God used to save the person that God used to save you? I want you to consider and find yourself amazed and grateful if you are a Christian by all the people, times, and circumstances that God has ordained and arranged for you to know him. Just consider and then just worship the Lord for all of his sovereign workings in order to bring about your salvation. Your life, your life is the latest segment and a legacy that started before the foundations of the word will lay. So I don't want, I'm not looking for you to get self-esteem and tell yourself that you're a pretty snowflake or you've got the Jedi force and trust your inner feelings, okay? But I do want to tell you that you are important. You're significant. You're loved. You're beloved and delighted in by a God who knew you. He foreknew you. And from the creation, from him speaking, the universe from that time forward, he was ordaining and aligning. If you are a Christian and you are in his kingdom, you are his beloved son or daughter, he's been ordaining very carefully, very exquisitely like a master the circumstances of your salvation. If you are not a Christian, but you're here because there's someone who has been praying for you, they encourage you, come, come to church with me, come, come hear this stuff. The Lord has been ordaining even sovereign moments like this for you to be called Jesus has been on the move. He's been moving. And this is, this is a time right now, like today, you can, you can move with the Lord. You can see the legacy that he's, that he's been preparing for you to be included in his kingdom, for you to repent and believe and be saved and rescued and have a new life, free from sin, free from shame, right? Free from the enslavement of sin and shame and have, actually have a life of significance and meaning in a kingdom that is coming where you'll be with the Lord forever and ever. Amen. That is for you. Now, Apollos wasn't just a Christian. Uh, he somehow arrived in Ephesus, which is now five. I'm doing a lot. I wish I would have like, done a map or something. Ephesus is like 500 miles north of Alexandria. All right. So if you take a boat just straight up, that's not a short boat trip. Why, why is he there? Why is he there? Um, we have some clues. We don't, it doesn't say why Apollos showed up 500 miles away, but we have some clues. We can kind of derive that. Uh, ancient Ephesus was a very influential city. It was known as the gateway to Asia. It was very diverse, lots of commerce, lots of travel, many ideas. All right. So this is a prime place for a church to be planted. That, why, why do you think the Lord sent Paul to Ephesus? And Apollos shows up at Ephesus as well. And Apollos is an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord. He has a fervent spirit. That means passionate, exciting, is a charismatic communicator. All right? Uh, I, 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 I totally forget. I, I'm trying to bring this to mind. It's not my notes. Uh, but I for, totally forget the theologian or pastor who basically said, I just, when I preach, I'm just going uh, to get up to the pulpit and set myself on fire in the hopes that people would come to watch me burn. All right? That's Apollos. He's just going to go open a vein and go, Jesus is blood, all right? And people, are gonna, people respond, right? That's Apollos' gift. He's found here teaching the things of Jesus accurately, I might add. So what's Apollos doing? He's a missionary. He's a missionary. He's an ambassador. Second Corinthians chapter five, he's an ambassador of the gospel, 
I don't know if he was prepared or sent by some church in Alexandria. We don't, we don't have that. But all we know is he's answered some sort of call from the Lord to go for some strange reason to Ephesus. That's like trying to go from the backwoods north country of Australia to come to Fayetteville, Georgia. Right? Why, why, how did you land here? Right? There's you know, Los Angeles, New York, all sorts of really cool places. How did you land here? God called. God, God said, that right here, right here, this is what, what we're doing. And, and that's how Apollos finds himself there. Let's move on. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What Priscilla and Aquila do is really kind in two ways. Priscilla and Aquila are, are super kind. Remember Paul left them uh, in Ephesus. Hey, stay here. We're planting a church here. You, sa- you stay here. You've spent a year and a half with me in the trenches out in Corinth, all right? You are my core group setup people for this church plant. So you stay here, all right? And they go, all right, and they start to follow him. He's like, wait, where are you going? They're like, you know, we're, we're coming with you. He goes, no, you stay here until I return. Like, all right, so we will go until you get back. He's like, no, no, you stay here. None of you, not a single hit. Only Kirk is just shaking his head at me. That's sad. All right, all right, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. I, I, okay, fine. I caught my wife watching. I didn't see it. I just rebuked her for it. So, okay. He left them there, and they see Apollos preaching the gospel. And they're like, hey, that guy can throw. Wow, he's got a few wonky things here. It's not quite right, but this, this kid is awesome. This dude is terrific. So what they do is very kind. One, they disciple a brother quietly and, and in private. Possibly they, they invite him to their home to hang out. And who knows how the conversation went, but they, they, they go, hey, tell us more about what you have learned. Tell, t- what were you inter- let, let's talk about baptism. What, what do you know about, so the baptism, what, what do you know about the bat- baptism of Jesus? He, oh, I, don't, I don't really honestly know. So they did this in, in private, and they're discipling and loving him. They see a weakness. They see an open spot in his theology, and they go, hey, we, we want to help him. So they're helping him, and they're doing so. The second way they're helpful is they do it quietly and in private. In doing this privately, they, they honor and respect Apollos instead of calling him out publicly and, and doing it on Facebook. I love and hate Facebook. I promise not to talk about it every time I come here. All right? Sometimes a brother just needs help. Sometimes a brother just needs help. They need some redirection, more instruction, or just plain old correction. And it's generally just not best and wise. It's not the most dignified. It's not the most respectful what, thing to do is to correct them in the lobby of the church or in a public forum, or in the middle of the party, right? Or, or, or in front of the people possibly they're lead or leading or in charge of, right? If there's a, if there's a dad who needs some sort, of, some sort of correction or, or help as you're seeing him interact with his children, you know, help that dad out. Take him off to the side privately away from his children and, 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 and reason with him and woo him to obey the Lord. Do that privately to care for the dignity of the man who has to go back and lead those kids, Right? And so what Paul is doing, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila are doing, they're, they're doing something very kind, something necessary and kind. If you really like helping people, especially when someone gets it wrong publicly, uh, Apollos is up there publicly getting some things wrong. He's doing a great job, but he's, I mean, I, I can understand what it's like to be a, Apollos. I'm thankful that my very first sermons are no longer findable online, all right? I'm not even kidding, and among you, there are, there's an older brother and sister in Christ, husband and wife, who shed a lot of grace and patience and took me aside to lovingly 
asked me some questions and, and woo me to, toward wiser, more biblical thinking and attitudes. And they were very kind to me and they treated me with more dignity than, than I should be afforded. And Priscilla and Quill are terrific. Do you, you ever had someone call you out in a public manner? Right? Even if you were totally wrong, but they just like, they just blow the whistle right in front of, you, right in front of everyone, right? And, and, and man, isn't your heart attitude like, oh, wow, thank you. You're a real piece of work, all right? You're such a gem. God bless you. Thank you, right? All right? Priscilla and Aquila are, again, just a role model example of Christian, dignified, moving, dedicated Christian brother and sister. And they're just tent makers, right? They're just tent makers. They're not, he's, Aquila's not a pastor. Priscilla's not a pastoress or a deaconess. Or, there, there's, but they're wise Christian brother and sister, husband and wife team doing ministry where they're at, wherever they're at. And they do it in a loving way. Verse 27, when he wished, when Apollos wished to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. There's a special moment here uh, regarding uh, calling, all right? Apollos wished to go to Greece, specifically where he's going to end up is in Corinth, right? He aspired to, he thought, I think I'm supposed to go to Corinth. Paul's church, this Paul you've introduced me to and told me about, is that the church has been planted there. Priscilla and Aquila, you've instructed me and helped me shore me up in my theology. I'm a better pastor now, better speaker, preacher, right? Now, I think I should go. I think I should go. And look at verse 27. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, all right? The leaders in the church at Ephesus agreed and confirmed with him that he should go. They wrote letters of affirmation attesting this guy not only is great at what he does, he's not only just a good communicator, all right? He's not just a good organizer and, 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 and just a, a, a leader of infrastructure and systems, but this guy knows and loves Jesus. This guy is with Jesus, man. Uh, so, so listen to him, accept him, bring him on into the crew there in the church of, uh, of Corinth. Apollos was concerned with doing what God wanted him to do. Apollos, like Paul, was pursuing his vocation. I, I, I want to sit in and just kind of camp out on this. We use that word in church world, at least, uh, calling uh, just so wonky, right? When, when, I, when I was supposed to plant a church, I thought I was called to plant a church. When, 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 your, when your own pastor, Kirk, was, was thinking he was called to plant a church, it, man, neither of us really could afford to go, well, I think it'd be really cool because honestly, in the last several years, a church planting has become a very sexy business industry, all right? You need a plaid shirt, an awesome beard, a satchel with Apple products, and some, some, some awesome-looking designer jeans, and you need, you need to start a church, right? And that's your starter package. Go to some conferences, and, and yeah, it's, and we, we, we recognize we can't go in the fuzzy warmth of this would be a really cool thing to do because church planting is the best job that I've ever had, and it's the most difficult, painstaking, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching ulcer-creating thing I've ever taken part in. I would not do this ever unless Jesus said you have to do that. And neither would Kirk. All right? Neither would Kirk. We would not do this unless Jesus said you, you better do this. This is what I'm telling you to do. 
And so discovering calling in our lives, that's, calling isn't just a thing for church planters or pastors. I'm going to argue that every single Christian is called. There's a general calling. I'm going to argue that there's a general calling for all Christians to be 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be ambassadors for the gospel, ambassadors representing Jesus and wooing any and all to know and believe that for your sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. That's a general calling for all of us to live our lives as ambassadors. But then there is a unique calling on your life that God has for you, like Apollos, like Paul, like Priscilla, like Aquila, like, like these folks in the Bible. There's a calling on your life. How do I discover that? It's, what we mean here when I say calling is vocation. Vocation. And I don't want you to get that mixed up between job and vocation. Some of you, for me, I have a unique position. I have a unique calling, right? My job, what I do to provide for my family and get food on the table is actually my vocation. It's what God has called me to. Right? Some of you, you, you'll have a job that you're going to work that puts food on the table and supplies for you and your family, but then you also have an, an, a vocation, a calling that God has placed on your life, a thing that you're going to wrap uh, your, your, your ministry, your, your heart, your mind, your efforts, even your job itself is going to serve that vocation. Some of you know what it's like to make really hard decisions about your job and your hours and where you're going to work based off of this thing that God has called you to in your life. And you're, by God, you're not going to work that third shift because if I work the third shift at that job and it supplies great, it's great benefits and it's good money, but I can't work that job because it's third shift. And I, God has called me to be a community group leader in, in, in this church. I'm to disciple people in this way, in this season and time. So I, this is my vocation, my vocation, God's calling on my life. What I do with my life, not what I do for a living, what I do with my life that, that, that takes the precedence. That takes the priority. And, and the reason we call it vocation, it starts with voca. It means calling. God's going, you, now, this, right here. I, I don't care what's sparkly over there. I don't care. I know it looks dangerous. Get over here. This way. Come on. It's calling on you. Vocation. Don't get that mixed up with your job, what you do for your living. The big question becomes, well, how do I figure out what that calling is? I got a lot of dreams. I have a couple of my church. Um, I told them that, you know, you guys are supporting a church in, in, in Scotland and, and RCC is going to be coming in, kind of help trying to swing, swing with you guys towards Scotland. Um, and they were like, oh, is there an opportunity to go to Scotland on a mission trip? I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe we'll go visit that church. We'll probably, I don't know, possibly. Oh, we'd love to go to Scotland. We're thinking maybe our vocational call is to someday be to help a church planter in Scotland. Oh, no, I will not allow it. You have to stay here with me, right? All right. Pastors don't like to see people go, all right? I love them very much. But some of you are going, well, what should I do with my life? I'm in college. Maybe I want to do this. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a parakeet trainer. Uh, I, maybe I want to get, I, I, what if I get married? What if I have a kid right now? What if I have a kid right now? Is that God's calling? Because I think there's some job I have to do, some thing I'm supposed to do with my career that I can't do if I have a kid right now. What, what, kind of becomes difficult to sometimes piece out and, and parse out what, what God's calling is past the warm fuzzies. Uh, I'll, I'll offer these. There are, um, there are four, four things I'm looking for in helping, um, continuing to reaffirm my calling as a church planter and then to help people in, in my church discover and respond to God's call. One is calling. And what I mean here is calling by, uh, how do you, you think you, you really have a real strong spiritual urge that the Lord is going, hey, you, you, no, not, not you in the plaid shirt, you in the blue shirt, come here, let's do this. 
right? And, and it comes through in a form of just dreaming, a dreaming, passion, all right? Passion, excitement, enthusiasm, right? A, a fixation of just, oh, I have a heart for that. I have a passion for that. Uh, it may even turn into a heartache, a heartache for a people, a heartache for a community, a heartache for, for, uh, for a vocation that serves a, a particular people you're just heartbroken for. There's, there's this calling, this voice that goes, I have to do that, otherwise I'm going to blow up. I, it's, I, I have a conviction that that's what obedience to the Lord looks like. That's, that's, that's the first of the four C's, is just calling, just this internal thing. And then we want to look at the character. Right? For, for pastors, for deacons, for elders, things like that, the Bible's pretty clear about, about character. All right? What kind of person, what kind of character qualities are going to have to be demonstrated in order to know whether or not you're actually called to be a, a deacon or, or an elder? Right? You can look, go look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and, and in Ch- Titus. The, the character qualifications, this has nothing to do with what you're ab- able to do, but it's more about the person Jesus is making you into. Right? So, so with that vocation, with that calling you believe you have, is there a character that matches up to that, right? Like so, some vocations are going to really require courage, like bravery. Bra- like I, I'm scared of guns, right? I just, you know, I, I think Charles Bird and Kirk McDonald, maybe Greg Reed have seen me with a gun. I just, get, I just pick up, I'm like kind of ginger with it. Kirk took me sh- shooting a few weeks back, and I'm like, the whole time, I'm like making sure not to sweep do- him or dogs or anything with the barrel, right? Like, I, he's shooting, and I'm standing behind him in case a bullet might ricochet off of the wood, you know, that we're shooting at, and uh, hopefully it'll hit him and save me. But I'm like, and I asked him, he's like, he's like, bullets don't ricochet off the wood. It's, it's not that kind of bullet. Just, but... I, don't, I probably don't need to be a cop, right? I don't need to be a cop, especially when I don't like to, to fight or, or, or get in people's faces and stuff. That's why I ha- I, I, I'm, I'm getting large deacons at Restoration City Church, large deacons, all right? So I can just be the mouth, they can be the muscle. What is, your, what is this calling? What kind of character does this calling require? For, for, for pastoral ministry, for ministry within the church as a leader, it calls for a, 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 just a sincere, passionate, a long-suffering devotion to holiness and pursuit of holiness and the things of the Lord, right? Deep faith, right? What is the character, the character that's required for this vocation? And, and is the Lord providing that to you? As well as, the, is there competency, right? It, I mean, you can have the calling to pitch in the majors, all right, you can, you can have the character, you can, yeah, guts of steel, and you know how to read the play, and you know all the signs that the catcher does, you know all the strategies about where the ball's supposed to go when it's hit where, you can have the knowledge and the character and the passion, but man, I'm sorry, you're the bat boy who has a great heart, but you're not meant to throw because you don't have the competency. That's, we laugh, but it's real hard to hear. I've been there where I've been told, listen, you got a great heart, you have a great heart, and you have a good intention. What you're aspiring for is really terrific. That's a good thing. But you don't have the competency for that. God's not gifted you for that. It's part of confirming, part, part of understanding God's vocational call to you, what you're to wrap your life around. You want to look at competency. Some competency, you can get. You can get it, train it, learn it. Some competency, it may just not be there for you. Finally, there's confirmation. Confirmation. It, the, the person after Satan, the one person who's going to lie most to you is you. 
The one person who's going to lie to you most is, is you, after Satan. So sometimes we'll want something so bad we're willing to lie to ourselves and, and, and inflate ourselves or, or misjudge what, we're, what our character is, what our calling is, right? what, what our competency is. And what we need is a loving person who we invite to come and, and look and, and evaluate us and go, yeah, yeah, I see that too. Yeah. Someone else with the Holy Spirit to lovingly observe you and see and judge and evaluate and, and, and confirm that calling or possibly to go, no, I have concerns about this. I think you should wait. Let's get some more guys. Let's, let's, let's get some more ladies. Let's spend some time in prayer over you. Let's spend a season of watching. Maybe, maybe the character is suffering, so let's get some restoration, some repentance going. Seek that spiritual health. Maybe you have some content. Let's just get you trained. You're good to go, Other, except for, let's get you trained. Let's take you through some theology courses. Let's get, take you out of the gun range and teach you how to shoot straight, right? Confirmation. And that's what Apollos, in many ways, would have been working through. This is, this is about God's will. A lot of times we get really wrapped up with, what's God's will for me? I want to know God's will. You want to know God's will? Know God. All right? N- know God. How do you know what your father's will for you? I mean, your dad's will, right? How do you know what your dad's will? Like, you know your dad's will, even as a kid, even when he's not there telling you what to do. You know exactly your dad's will for you. How do you know when he's not there what his will is? You know your dad. You know, you're like, should I tape yellow jackets to this Nerf bat and hit the cat. <laughs> Is that my dad's will? Well, he hasn't told me not to. <laughs> he didn't tell me to, but he didn't tell me not to. But I know my dad. This is not what he would have me do. I'm going to find God's calling. Find, find God's path for you. Find God. Find God. That, that will, over time, will be uh, revealed for you. This passage is a movement passage. I'm at the end here. This passage is a movement passage. C.S. Lewis writes The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book of it, and I love it. I have a great heart and passion and enjoyment for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and there's this great just sort of before Aslan, the king who's a lion, before he finally shows up, until he shows up and you see him for the first time, there's just this whispering, these, these rumors of rumors that Aslan, Aslan's on the move. The, 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 the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they're saying, they tell the Pevensey children, they go, you should know that Aslan's on the move. Aslan's on the move, right? It's never Christmas here. It's always winter time, but there's a thaw. It's not as cold as it once was. I hear that people are giving people gifts out there. Why? Aslan's on the move. People are gathering. People are getting ready. Aslan's on the move. And as you read that, man, if you've ever read that and experienced it, you know what it's like to go, yeah, Aslan's on the It makes you want to move. This is a moving, Paul is moving, Apollos is moving, Basila and Quilla, they're moving. Why? Jesus is on the move. The Lion of Judah, he's on the move. He's on the move. Are you moving? Will you move with the Lord? Will you pursue him? He's out ahead. He's in the rear. He's on your sides. He's with you. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus on the move. Will you move? Will you take the steps? Will you devote yourself to the Lord? Will you make the promise of sanctification of your body, heart, mind, and soul of your very life? Will you suffer for him to draw close to him, to know him? Will you devote yourself to the pursuit of holiness? Will you devote yourself to the Lord's people who are there to strengthen one another? Will you devote yourself to his church? Will you devote yourself to seeking and moving in God's calling on your life? Will you get your eyes up off of simply just your career or your job? Will you look at and move to where God's 
Yo, let's go over here. Let's do this. You have no idea what I have in store for what I'm going to do through you. Will you devote yourself? Jesus is on the move. I'm, I'm calling you, Gospel Community Church, in your lives, in your homes, in your community groups, here in the city, at the restaurants, at your, in your, wherever you're at. Move, get moving, devote yourself to the Lord. Move with him because Jesus is on the move. Let's pray. Lord, I confess I don't, I don't want to stop talking. I don't want to stop preaching. You're all together too good to be silent about sometimes. But Lord, we just think I'm supposed to be silent for a second. I'm supposed to talk when I pray. I think I'm going to be quiet when I pray for a second. While we're quiet, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts. Make yourself known. Stir up devotion and affection for you. Show yourself so we can behold you, Lord. Lord, let us think think about that blood that you shed, suffering and sanctifying, saving us. I pray that you would move in our hearts, strengthen us with your people and your word in such a way that those of us who have been spiritual cripples, we can get up and dance with new legs and move. Give bravery, give faith to those of us who think we know where you're calling, but it's scary. It's sacrificial. It's, it's possibly dangerous. I pray that you would move us as you are on the move. Lord, we love you. And it's all for the name and because of the name of Jesus that we pray and live and exalt you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you.